Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much uh, once again uh, for leading us and guiding us by appealing to our, our minds as well as our hearts. And we just pray that even though we can't resolve all the questions that are in our, mind, in our minds today, at the same time that we will formulate sufficient evidence upon which to base our faith. And uh, we thank you so much for leading thus far. Continue to lead us throughout these meetings. We pray in your name. Amen. All right. So let's go ahead and continue on. I'm just going, going, going to go ahead and finish off by reading this quote once again and then moving forward just to uh, frame the context once again. Uh, we finished off this with this quote by Christopher Wright uh, in the context of of uh, the divorce controversy, how God accommodated and uh, sometimes had to meet uh, human sinners where they were at, not, not licensing sin, but, uh, but understanding and accommodating uh, their mindset, but of course with the grand purpose of, of taking them higher and bringing them forward. And uh, we see that um, in the New Testament when Jesus addresses that issue. Christopher Wright, in, in that context, also um, makes some broad uh, implications upon slavery and polygamy in that same context. He says, it seems probable that if Jesus had been asked questions about slavery or about polygamy, he would have answered similarly. From the beginning, these things were not in God's intention, but in a fallen world of hardened hearts, they might be accommodated with limiting and mitigating regulations and with a strongly subversive critique that would eventually lead to a clear recognition uh, of their wrongness. And so that's something to keep in mind. So in line with this, what is sometimes stated in certain portions of the Old Testament, especially the ceremonial laws. We know that some of those were uh, negated uh, after the cross, the, the, um, and we as Adventists know that. But what is stated in certain portions of the Old Testament was not necessarily the ideal, but perhaps plan B, C, and D. How many of you think in your own life that God is at plan X or plan Z. Hopefully not plan Z because uh, then we have to broaden the alphabet because with God there is always opportunity. With God there is always the possibility of him doing the miraculous. Even turning the stubborn heart from a life of sin to one uh, of righteousness in, through his blood. But but what is stated, uh, obviously, is not necessarily the, the, the first option in his plan, but God is great at, at meeting uh, diversions in our lives. For example, how many of you have a GPS? The best illustration I can use is a GPS. You know what I love about GPS? You know, my wife and I will go uh, to some town and just, you know, uh, if, we're, if we have a little motel or hotel or something, we, we mark that in, and then we just want to go exploring, right? Let's just go get lost and look around and drive uh, out in nature or go out over there. And what's awesome about GPS, it doesn't matter where you're at. 
It has to be a good GPS, though, by the way. Um, but, but no matter where you, you're at, you just hit go home. And it doesn't matter where, how far you've strayed, it always leads you back to your destination. And I, I'm talking about uh, a reliable GPS that, that is working, of course. And, and, and that just goes to show you that God is even beyond and much better than GPS. Because um, no matter where you're at, he, will, he can get you home. And, and scripture is our ultimate GPS because it's the map that takes us home. We need to see it in context. And that's one of the points that I'm making here. And, and it's so important that we see scripture in context. And remember, we spoke a little bit about the kindling of the fires earlier. Uh, the Sabbath application was contextual, according to Ellen White in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 409. This prohibi prohibition of kindling on the Sabbath. Now, you and I, based on, on our assumptions of, of, of truth and how we read scripture, if we don't understand the correct uh, hermeneutic or science of interpreting scripture, we could just pull open the Old Testament, read kindling of fire, and believe that we can never pick up sticks on Sabbath, right? Um, and so um, we need to be careful that we don't, uh, that we use our minds and our brains to, to, un, to seek to understand scripture in its broader setting and also its specific setting as well. Notice what Ellen White says about the kindling of fires. She says, during the sojourn in the wilderness, the kindling of fires upon the seventh day had been strictly prohibited, strictly prohibited. The pro prohibition was not to extend to the land of Canaan. Very interesting. It was not to extend to the land of Canaan, where the severity of the climate would often render fires a necessity. But in the wilderness, fire was not needed for warmth. The act of this man was a willful and deliberate violation of the fourth commandment. It was a, and that's the key here. Willful and deliberate violation. A defiant act against God. A sin, not of thoughtlessness or ignorance, but it was one of uh, presumption. And there, there are some implications, broad implications that we can draw from this about the observance of Sabbath. For example, I may not I may not go canoeing on Sabbath, right? Because for me, that, that may mean I'm having recreation. I'm just going to have fun and have water fights and, and go crazy out there, right? But to someone on the, living on the Amazon, the canoe is their only means to, to get to church, right? And so we, when we look at the Sabbath, uh, something that needs to be kept in mind uh, is that sometimes the application can be contextual. And uh, that although the Sabbath is a universal, timeless, moral absolute, right? And I think we'd all agree with that. Having said that, uh, specific conventions or applications may not be absolute or universal. And I gave you an example of that with the canoe. Um, and, uh, and, and there's other ways to look at that. And you also see that principle in that statement that I just read from Ellen White 
where in one, one instance where it was unneeded for them to gather sticks, God uh, forbade it, but then where it, where it was a necessity, God uh, uh, opened or, or, or changed or altered that prohibition uh, in a different context. Now, having said that, what I'm not saying is that now we can break the Sabbath just because uh, you know, we're, we're in a place and we're hungry and we have needs and so we, we're just going to go and go to a nice fancy restaurant on Sabbath. That is not what I'm saying. Uh, I, I limit um, what I'm saying to what the spirit of prophecy itself has stated, that, that God made some accommodation that in some ways uh, there is a there is some differences in application. And, uh, and that's about as far as I'll, I'll go with that. We must be careful not to interpret or draw conclusions from Scripture uh, in isolation from the context. And so, um, so keep that in mind. Let's look at the Canaanite genocide as the atheists uh, term it. Uh, genocide is not a word that rings something positive. How many of you, when you think of genocide, you think, oh, great, yes, all right? No, probably not. Canaanite genocide, they're, they're using that term specifically in a, in a negative uh, sense. It's probably the most difficult Old Testament ethical issue uh, which uh, is the command, the divine command to kill the Canaanites. And what are, to, or what are we to do with texts like these? Verse 16 in Deuteronomy chapter 20 says this, But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. Verse 17, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, uh, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. Verse 18, that they may not teach you to do according uh, to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. And here you have an instance where you can't really see it too well there, but where, where God is giving their, their reason. Uh, the, and the reason or the justification here in this verse is that they may not learn to do uh, all their abominable uh, practices. So what do we know? Well, how do we even, or, or what do we know, uh, and what's our starting point in terms of how do we go about making sense of these things? Um, well, let's start with what we do know. Number one, we do know that God provided probationary time uh, for the Canaanites. That's clear. You find it in Genesis chapter 15, verses 15 and 16. And by the way, this is not the only instance. I just have one verse here. But you see repeatedly a certain concept that, that clearly indicates that they were given some probationary time. Speaking to Abraham, 
and the, within the context of him seeing the stars and, and, and God promising to, to multiply his seed, etc., he says, as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they, meaning his posterity, shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Uh, and that's Amorites is it's a broad uh, term used to also uh, typify the the, the Canaanite uh, inhabitants. And so, so you 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 see how many of you have read scripture before and and seen and have seen this term used uh, throughout uh, the Old Testament in places where he says um, that that where, where God indicates to His people that He's not going to destroy them because their time is not yet complete. And that clearly is an indication that God is not arbitrary, that he's not just eager there waiting to, to blot them out, but it, that he's observing, that he's waiting, that he's uh, seeing, giving them a chance, allowing the Holy Spirit to continue its work uh, for their salvation. So, uh, and you also see in uh, the time of Noah, the antediluvian world, uh, that God gave them 120 years. You also uh, see God providing or allowing for a probationary time uh, in the, uh, even within the context of Sodom and Gomorrah. You see it in the language where God is going to see, he's going to assess to see their status or their state before he does anything um, uh, in, in terms of enacting judgments. So, um, so texts like these do indicate that it wasn't just an arbitrary decision, a whimsical, capricious decision of God. There was also a criteria, a logic to this decision-making process. Uh, it was clear and it's explicitly stated that they were uh, destroyed or, uh, because of their wickedness. And if you look at the Canaanite sins, uh, in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 20 through 30, the Bible reads that, that uh, it, in terms of his instruction to the, the Israelites, within the context of uh, the, the, them um, uh, going forward uh, with uh, their, their battles against the Canaanites, notice what God sa says here. You shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, right? Uh, they were offering, uh, he was commanding them not to offer their children to Moloch, <clears throat> to lie uh, with a male as with a woman. So you have the practice of homosexuality going on. Uh, bestiality as well. Um, and notice what God says. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these things, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, so that I punished its iniquity. Do none of these abominations, for the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, lest the land vomit you out. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off. 
So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you. God often meted out judgment using uh, a nation or a people uh, to, as his instruments of, of justice. <clears throat> Not only were the ancient Israelites at one period of time God's instruments of justice, but you also have pagan and heathen nations that God used as instruments of his justice. If, if you want an example, think of Babylon, right? Think of the nation of, of Assyria that uh, essentially um, uh, ended the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel and Babylon, the southern kingdom of Judah. And so this argument that that God, uh, you know, he had this, he was, uh, uh, he's guilty of favoritism, that he was only about the Jewish people, and, and the, the scripture is, is um, clearly a book written by Jews that is ethnocentric, that favors themselves. That's, that's a faulty uh, uh, claim, because not only do you see judgments meted out uh, against other pagan nations, you also see judgments meted out against ancient Israel themselves. Uh, because ultimately, God's people, they uh, began to practice the same uh, abominable sins uh, of the Canaanites. <clears throat> so why, why, why did he rid the land of the Canaanites. Now, we know that there was uh, some justification for it in terms of justice. We, we have a list of, of clear, explicit, uh, uh, abominable sins that they were partaking in. But another, another factor or another key uh, thing we need to look at is the fact that God had the end in mind. God had the end in mind. He was looking at the ideal down the road, and he needed to get there. And uh, what was that ideal? What, what is or was that end? <clears throat> to save the world, which was his ultimate purpose or his ultimate end, God had to equip and prepare the few. See, throughout the ages, God's people have always, at, at certain periods of time, have been on the verge of extinction. Now, what do you think would have happened if God's faithful actually became extinct? That there was no, there was no, no longer any, any uh, uh, faithful individual who could carry forward God's work. Uh, God's mission of, 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 of being a light to the world. And uh, you often have uh, God working out in mir miraculous ways where he, he maintains uh, a faithful few. And God ultimately wanted to do much more than that. And he had the ultimate purpose of saving not just a few, a limited number, but the world at large. And, uh, and that was his ultimate purpose. So God had to equip and prepare the few. And he started uh, with the nation of Israel, uh, initially through Abraham and so forth. And uh, to do that, 
He also needed to prepare a people and a place. Those are, these are some of the promise originally, promises of originally prom, uh, granted or uh, given to Abraham. You find that in Genesis 15 uh, and, and onwards um, and in multiple places. But God needed to prepare a people and a place. God had a twofold purpose for Israel during the time of the Canaanite conquest. First, to use ancient Israel as his instruments of justice, and mind you, only when they had, when their probation had closed, their probationary status had closed, uh, that, that God used um, them the, for as his instruments of justice. And second, to prepare a people to become his instruments of salvation uh, to the Gentile world. So when we look at the, the, the judgments of Jericho, for example, um, the first city that, that fell uh, uh, to, um, uh, as, as the Israelites were advancing forward. Notice what Ellen White says, and I believe this is very, very insightful. She says this, the utter destruction <clears throat> of the people of Jericho was but a fulfillment of the commands previously given through Moses concerning the inhabitants of Canaan. Thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Of the cities of these people, thou shalt save nothing, alive nothing that breatheth. To many, these commands seem to be contrary to the spirit of love and mercy commanded in other portions of the Bible. Now, Ellen White, did you know she engaged in some apologetics herself, defending God uh, in the context of some of these sometimes difficult things to digest. She says, to many, these commands seem to be contrary to the spirit of love and mercy and joining other portions of the Bible, but... They were in truth the dictates of infinite wisdom and goodness. Remember, God had the end in mind. God was about to establish Israel in Canaan to develop among them a nation and government that should be a manifestation of his kingdom upon the earth. They were not only to be inheritors of the true religion, but to disseminate its principles throughout the world. The Canaanites had abandoned themselves to the foulest and most debasing heathenism. And, and this is key here, that God would not have utterly destroyed them if this context was also not in place, the context of them practicing the foulest and most debasing uh, and defiance against God and debasing heathenism. And it was necessary, she goes on to say, that the land should be cleared of what would so surely prevent the fulfillment of God's gracious purposes. And we're going to read on in a little bit. I, um, another commentator says this in, in, in this same line of thought. If the Israelites hadn't done serious damage to the Canaanite religious infrastructure, the result would have been incalculable damage to Israel's integrity and thus to God's entire plan 
to redeem humanity. Much was at stake in creating the necessary context, including a set-apart people in a set-apart land, in order to bring about redemption and an eventually restored creation for a specific, relatively short, and strategic period, God sought to establish Israel in the land with a view to fulfilling this long-term uh, global plan of redemption. Going on, uh, or another commentator, in the Old Testament history of Israel, there is a clear distinction between the people of Israel and the rest of the nations. Israel was the people whom God had chosen, called, redeemed, and brought into covenant relationship with himself. The nations did not yet enjoy that relationship, but, and this is the utterly crucial point, and it is for me as well, the whole purpose of God in choosing Israel was so that the nations would eventually do so. The overall thrust of the Old Testament is not, again, is not Israel against the nations, but Israel for the sake of the nations. And uh, we see this, this principle, this uh, clearly articulated uh, in, in the story of Abraham, when, when God specifically told him that uh, through, through Abraham, the nations would be blessed. And of course, we know ultimately that meant Jesus, but there's also a, a shadow of, of that blessing in the nation of Israel uh, themselves. Now, <clears throat> would you say that ancient Israel fulfilled God's uh, plan to a T? Did they, did they hit a home run with that? Did they make it? Did they arrive? Um, there were certainly bright points in their history um, and, and a whole lot of, of low points in their history. Notice what <clears throat> Psalms chapter 106, uh, and, and you see the verses there, 34 through 36, 37, 38, and 39. What, what the psalmist states uh, occurred as a result of their failure, of Israel's failure to carry out the original plan of God. Notice what, what is said here. They, the Israelites, did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled, they mingled with the nations. They learned their practices. And that's one of the reasons why, why television is such a powerful instrument. Because isn't television where we learn the practices of the world? Yeah. And, and uh, where we often can mingle uh, with the nations in, in a certain sense. And notice what, what he says as we move further along. It's that's when they began to serve their idols, and, and which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. Thus, they became unclean in their practices and play the harlot in their deeds. 
You can think of it this way. God was hoping that some would be saved by, by his people following his plan. But when they failed to do that, it reduced the overall number of those who would ultimately be saved in his kingdom. And God was thinking with a broader uh, concept or, or the broader goals in mind. And that is the, the salvation of souls through a people that would be vessels or agents uh, of light to the world. Now, having said that, I personally believe that that could only occur once their, the probationary status, and I want, I just, I'm reiterating that to make it crystal clear that they had reached the point of no return, and it was not until that that God could, uh, that God can enact these judgments upon the Canaanites. We get that a clear, uh, explicit that uh, principle uh, of that found uh, in, in statements where God. Uh, said that their sins are not yet full, or their time is not yet, etc. Does that make sense? So God's ultimate purpose was to bless all nations, both Jews and Gentiles alike, through the establishment of Israel as ministers of salvation. Thus, the multiplication of Israel... Right, because God had told him originally uh, on that starry night, so shall your seed be. Right, and God was going to use uh, a, a nation of priests to be light to the world. So, as God's people were multiplying, and if you couple that with the fact that probation had ceased for the Canaanites, and and God is the only one who make, can make that judgment. This made it possible for God to enact his justice upon the Canaanites and initiate the Canaanite conquest for the ultimate establishment of Israel as his light bearers to a, to a fallen world. Now, do you think uh, in, 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 in the vein of uh, this question, did the inhabitants of Canaan have, did they have chan a chance, an opportunity? Uh, did they have sufficient light upon which to make a decision in the first place? Ellen White says this, the inhabitants of Canaan had been granted ample opportunity for repentance. Forty years before, the opening of the Red Sea and the judgments upon Egypt had testified to the supreme power of the God of Israel. And now the overthrow of the kings of Midian, of Gilead, and Bashan had further shown that Jehovah was above all gods. The holiness of his character and his abhorrence of impurity have been evinced in the judgments visited upon Israel for their participation in the abominable rites of Baal Peor. All these events were known to the inhabitants of Jericho. And there were many who shared Rahab's conviction, though they refused to obey it, that Jehovah, the God of Israel, is God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath. Like the men before the flood, the, the Canaanites lived only 
And this gives you a picture of the mindset of the Canaanites. They lived only to blaspheme heaven and defile the earth. And both love and justice demanded the prompt execution of these rebels against God and foes to man. We, we sometimes forget how brutal these nations were, and we don't have time to delve into that, but, but they were a violent, brutal, uh, um, uh, these, these nations, when you read the, the histories of what they would do to their subjects and those they had defeated, they'd go out of their way uh, to, to um, not only shame, but just, uh, it, it's, it's, it's gross. It's, um, you can't even imagine some of the, the violent, abominable acts that were enact, enacted uh, by the people. So eradicating Jericho's inhabitants, reasons why? Well, to fulfill God's infinite wisdom and purpose, to establish the nation of Israel so that they could spread the message through Israel of God's kingdom, his principles and truths, that, Canaan, that the Canaanites had sufficient knowledge and light as a basis for accountability, and only then did, did God do that. And the inhabitants had ample time to repent for the demands of justice, and the purpose was, their purpose, of course, was only wicked and defiance against God. So we do know that the Canaanites, they knew better. And by the way, if you, if, for those of you who are writing notes, um, let me just give you a couple scriptures. We're not going to read them now, but uh, if you'd like to know uh, uh, what the Bible says, whether they had sufficient light or not, you can go to Joshua chapter 9, uh, or chapter 2, 9 through 11. Joshua chapter 9, 9 through 10. And uh, also uh, Exodus chapter 15, uh, verses 14 through 17. And Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 25. Let's bear in mind that the Canaanite conquest was a specific command by God, a special revelation. It was explicit. Uh, so it was for their context. Doesn't give us license to kill uh, atheists, uh, to go on a rampage and and do some crazy things like that? Uh, it does not. Uh, to rid the land of a specific people at a specific location for a specific purpose at a specific time in Earth's history. The removal of the Canaanites uh, was for the ultimate good of both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, they, the, their removal uh, or God removed them for the same reasons why our U.S. government, uh, whether the police force or the government at large, the federal government, seeks to get rid of, of drug dealers on the streets, uh, rapists and killers. It's why the police and the US, U.S. government has sought to remove terrorists like uh, Osama bin Laden, the mafia, and gangs. Uh, you remove such groups and individuals for the purpose of physical protection 
and for protection against abuse. And uh, in the case of ancient Israel, uh, uh, that's one of the key reasons why God um, instructed them to, to get rid of that nation, because they were a violent people, abusive people, enacting terror on, on the nations surrounding them. And so in order to maintain or protect uh, for, for physical protection, spiritual protection, and also moral protection, uh, that was uh, what we see as God's purpose in doing that. So we come to a close. I, I want to look at uh, one incident here uh, in terms of harsh laws. Um, you know, much is made in the media today um, of stoning. And I'll be honest, when I, when I read about stonings that are occurring um, in the Middle East, for example, it just, it, it's, it's, it's abhorrent, right? It just, it's repulsive, the fact that that even happens. Uh, that, that it, that, um, that there's ever a, a reason or justification for uh, stoning. And I will admit that that's hard to digest um, uh, with my Western mindset. Now, so, so that's why you have many of these claims by the new atheists on the severity of the Old Testament, and that's why they attribute God as being evil and uh, unethical. And I, I just want to say a couple of things, and uh, this is uh, from Patriarchs and Prophets. Uh, speaking of the Egyptian who cursed a judge and God, and of course, there was capital punishment laid uh, out upon him. Though, there are those who will question God's love and his justice in visiting so severe a punishment for words spoken in the heat of passion. But both love and justice require it to be shown that utterance prompted, prompted by malice against God are a great sin. And notice she says both love and justice require it to be shown that utterance prompted by malice against God are a great sin. In what ways is it justice and in what ways uh, would you say that it's in love that God, um, that God, um, sometimes brings punishment or swift judgment upon the guilty sinner. These are some of the questions we need to ask. The retribution visited upon the first offender would be a warning to others that God's name is to be held in reverence. But had this man's sin been permitted to pass unpunished, and here she's, she's uh, providing a legitimate justification for it. Because again, remember, we have to keep the end in mind. What is the broader purpose? What kind of things uh, is God uh, thinking about when, when some of these things happen? Had this man's sin been permitted to pass unpunished, others would have been demoralized. And as a result, many lies must eventually have been sacrificed. And so if you, if you analyze this statement here on the severity, uh, on the severity 
both love, the, the reason given by Ellen White, both love and justice demanded it. Uh, were, they were not to minimize, or God did not want to minimize a grave sin. He wanted it to serve as a warning to others. And you find often at the onset of the establishment of, of a people or just as a movement is beginning to move forward, uh, uh, you look at um, even in the book of Acts um, and, and throughout the Old Testament, at the onset of, of God doing something grand or big, he often enacted these swift judgments for those who were defiant or clearly were violating uh, his precepts. And Ellen White speaks about uh, the context of Ananias and Sapphira uh, specifically, that, that God wanted to keep the church pure as the movement was going forward. And uh, the same applies here, that it would be a warning to others that God wanted to uh, keep the movement moving forward in, in pure fashion and to prevent demoralization or the transgression of others because what he was also thinking is that many more would have been lost had God not done uh, what he did. And so, um, and again, I think a, a safe assumption to have is that perhaps God knew that that man would not have been saved anyway, or perhaps he had reached the, uh, the, uh, the unpardonable sin or his probation has closed, had closed. Um, another way to look at it is when God cuts the wicked, uh, uh, the, the wickedness of man short, we have to remember that he's also, uh, that, that's love and mercy in the sense that, that if he has a lifelong uh, opportunity of, of going into further and further and further sins, he's going to have uh, increase the judgments and the, the, the penalties of sin later on. And so that's another way that, that um, some Adventists and, and others have, have um, explained the situation, and I think uh, they're valid. So the wrath of God in perspective. The wrath of God in perspective, and this is uh, the last little thought here. Um, this individual was born in Croatia, uh, Miroslav Volf, and uh, he lived through the ethnic strife of a former Yugoslavia that involved the, the rape, uh, the destruction of churches, and the murder of, of countless innocents. And he's a man that has struggled with this notion of the, the wrath of God, um, and uh, like, like many of us have. And notice what he says in, in the context of his experience with, with uh, in Yugoslavia and the atrocities that occurred there. I used to think, he says, that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. 
My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed, my people shelled day in and day out, and some of them brutalized beyond imagination. You can also think of the Holocaust, for example. And I could not imagine God not being angry. I could not imagine God not being angry at the atrocities that, that, that he was beholding. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, uh, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? It's okay. Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? When you see atrocities and it draws from your insides this, this anger at the injustice of, of people being abused and taken advantage of, does not that arise, uh, cause to arise within you this sense of, of justice? Not revenge, but justice. Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. And Ellen White, just to close off, this is the last statement. She says, a history of the great conflict between good and evil from the time it first began in heaven to the final overthrow of rebellion and the total eradication of sin is also a demonstration of God's unchanging love. Do you believe that? You know, I know that um, we don't have time to go into all the nuanced, arcane explanations um, uh, of, of all the specific things that were mentioned at the beginning of the slides. But what I'm hoping that, this, that these series of messages will do is, is provide for you a starting place, uh, uh, an approach, a perspective that, and just to start, uh, by the way, of your journey as you delve deeper and dig deeper into scripture and the spirit of prophecy, uh, not, not for the purpose of beating the atheist in, in any argument or debate, but for the purpose of resolving in your own mind who God is and God's character. Is he truly one that you desire to serve? Is he truly one that you can serve as, as a result of, of uh, a desire uh, of his character, an attraction that you have for who he is and what he stands for? That's the question that we, each of us, need to face in these last days. Well, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. And what I'm going to do is uh, explain to you what are the next series of meetings are going to cover uh, once I'm done. Let's go ahead and bow our heads for prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for being with us, for giving us scripture, to, for giving us uh, thoughtful individuals who are wrestling with these questions like we are. And Lord, we pray that, that we would never jump to conclusions, that we would always be seekers, not take anything for granted, not be reflectors of other men's thoughts, but as we hear other men's thoughts, also wrestle with them, seek to prove uh, from Scripture anything that is stated or assumed. We thank you, Lord. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. I hope that was helpful. Um, I just wanted to share, because uh, I know uh, there are many conferences going on, I just wanted to share as we close uh, what the next series of three meetings will cover that will start, uh, I believe, at 445 and go to 545. Uh, and we're going to cover the science of, of scripture interpretation. Uh, the first series is on the presuppositions or the assumptions we need to have about Scripture even before we, we read Scripture. And that, that's going to cover topics such as, I'm going to get a dabble into the KJV only debate a little bit. Uh, we're going to look at translations. Uh, what, what type of Bible would be, is the best fit for you as you're attempting to study Scripture? We're all, also going to look a little bit into the authority of Scripture itself. Uh, and then finally, this, the, the, the final component of, of this uh, next meeting will involve what we call revelation and inspiration. The process through which God relayed truth through the prophet's mind and the process through which the prophet took those thoughts and, and wrote them down to formulate the scripture. Uh, this is a, a very important topic that I think does not, has not received enough coverage because it impacts how we interpret scripture even before we start reading it. Um, some, uh, uh, and I'll close with this, some have the idea or notion that God, you know, um, wrote every word of scripture verbatim, word for word. Uh, many Adventists believe this, and uh, if, you, if you find yourself also believing this, well, uh, we'll see that the spirit of prophecy says differently. And uh, we also have an a eyewitness, uh, in some sense, to a prophet that lived around our era. And so we're going to look at and explore some of these things. Uh, God bless you, and uh, have a great uh, afternoon. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.